Hello and welcome to Two Tacos High, a handheld podcast. I'm Brian Seaman. I'm Nick Hansen. And as always in each episode, or at least the purpose of the podcast, that is, we talk all things handbells, whether that's current things, upcoming things, interviews, guests, other surprises. Well, today we are excited to welcome Dr. Christian Giebert. We, uh, Brian and I, figured after the really enjoyable handbell hangout episode with the techniques that we want to dive a bit more deeply into that from an academic perspective. And for those of you out there who don't know, Christian is, like I said, Dr. Christian. He did his dissertation on, quote, the timbral use of the handbell ensemble, background analysis and strategies. And that's from the University of California in Los Angeles. Is that right, Christian? That's right. UCLA. Excellent. But we are so glad to have you on here today so we can dive a bit deeper into just the techniques kind of more from, like I said, academically, but just to talk more deeply into, hey, you have a doctorate, a PhD, and your topic was handbell related, which is really awesome. I think before we kind of dive into questions and things, could you branch off that or build off that just briefly, just a little background about you and some work you've been doing, I guess, as well as the dissertation? My handbell background began when I was in middle school. Never really thought it would become part of my profession. Uh, it was clear to me that I wanted to be a musician and mostly a composer when I was young. So I immediately started doing that academically, and I ended up in a lot of school. I did my undergrad at Concordia University in Irvine, which had a very fine and still does have a very fine handbell program. And I was very lucky to be there for that. And then did graduate work at Cal State Fullerton and a little bit more post-baccalaureate stuff for a parish music certificate at Concordia. And then finally the doctorate at UCLA. This whole time I knew I wanted to compose, but also I loved teaching at the college level. And I also really appreciated getting to do church music. So all those things sort of became my life. But one continuous theme that I always noticed was that people outside of the handbell world do not know what handbells are or what handbells are capable of, the handbell ensemble specifically. I think that's something that we can all sympathize with if we're listening to this podcast, but that was an obvious truth that came forth. But it was also at the very highest level of academia. They don't know. They don't know about us, you guys. Um, <laughs> or at least most of them don't understand what the instrument is capable of. So this is something that I sort of noticed. So that's the seed that was planted in my mind that later became the idea for the dissertation work. And then I wrote this dissertation and published it in 2020 when I graduated with the PhD. And then now I live here in Orange County, California, my wife and my two little daughters. And I also work full-time at a church where I do handbells also for children and adults. And that's Abiding Savior Lutheran Church in Lake Forest, California. And I also am the artistic director of the Velocity Handbell Ensemble in the Bay Area, where I fly up there once a month to direct that ensemble with my assistant director, Marquise Usher. Jumping off of the one comment you said about, especially in, in higher education, not recognizing handbells. I was actually originally for a year, I was a composition major at the Boston Conservatory and had a composition teacher there specifically tell me, hey, yeah, that, that one piece you wrote for bells is cool, but you got to write for more than handbells. Mm. It was very much in a kind of dismissive way of like, yeah, writing for handbells isn't really actually composing. You need to compose for actual instruments was kind of the way that came across. So yeah, I've, I've sort of had that same experience. Yeah, definitely. So I guess that leads me directly into my sort of like professional life's goal, which I finally realized I'm in this position where I've made it into this academia world that I have contact there, I know now that they don't know what handbells are capable of. So on the other hand, uh, in the handbell world, we don't connect with them as much either. So then it got me really thinking like maybe my job in life, since I'm always like stuck between these two worlds, I feel sometimes 
pulled between them. Maybe my job is to try to evangelize for handbells, these people that don't know what it's capable of. And I found that to be a really fulfilling thing. And in Cal State Fullerton, I had the same thing as you, Brian, where I had some composition instructor feedback of like, you're going to write and you're going to put this on a recital and it's handbells. And obviously there's a whole like, isn't that like an education thing? Isn't it a toy? Isn't it a Christmas thing? Obviously I had to really work to convince them it wasn't going to be like that. And the way I did that was timbre. In other words, quality of sound or type of sound, because I just realized this is a little ridiculous that this world of like high art of concert music, if they actually knew how many different sounds a handbell, a single handbell could make, much less an ensemble, wouldn't they be tripping over themselves to write for our instrument more in like an experimental way? They really should be. So I've been trying to do that. And I wrote a piece at that time and I had two or three particularly grumpy and skeptical professors that I was taking lessons with at the time. And I performed the piece with a quartet and they were converted instantly. And they both came up and, and like just completely changed their minds. And they said, I had no idea that that could do that. Then I realized that there's so many people like that and we need to reach them all. And imagine if those people wrote for our instrument and learned how, how to write for their instrument, because that's the other problem is that we don't, teach, we don't teach that. And I get the conclusion of my dissertation is a series of proposals. I know you guys have checked this out. One of them is this exact point. I try to make the case. Composers, as they learn how to write for instruments, just naturally have to learn to write for the piano and the orchestra and that kind of thing. Wind instruments, brass instruments, percussion. But we are another of the percussion. So why not us too, I guess is my, is my main point there. So I've come up or was involved in a situation with Virginia Bronze. This is before Brian was the artistic director where we performed or we actually commissioned a, a conductor of a, of a local really good area symphony to write a symphony piece that involves the instruments of, of your standard orchestra, but as well as Virginia Bronze Hamble Ensemble. Mm. And I'm trying to say this tactfully. It wasn't well done. And it's not because for lack of talent or ability for this person to, as a composer. But from my understanding, his knowledge of the instrument was really what we told him could be done. But two, I believe he had essentially a, like, like a soundboard of, for lack of a better term, like MIDI sounds that yeah. else could create that yeah. someone had, you know, engineered together. So it's not that he didn't know how to write. He didn't know how to write properly for the instrument. Great example is he loved the sound of singing bells but didn't recognize that like the really high bells, they can't really sing well or at all. Mm. And they can't just happen immediately. There's timing and things to make it all come together. So I guess it's my long way of saying and asking, how do we educate those composers that the instrument is valid? Is it by more people being involved like you and, and working and creating dissertations and, and getting the information out there to share? Is it by saying to people, you know, hey, I've got this piece. Would you be willing to do it in your collegiate or doctoral level program to showcase it? Like, what are some steps that can be done? It's a great question. I think besides the convincing part, I think there just has to be maybe more handbell ensembles and sets within these universities. Because at Concordia, there was three, you know, there's a Schulmerich, Malmark, Pettit and Fritzen set there. And any composer that attended Concordia had that opportunity. And mm -hmm. I guess that's really what it is. You got to have the bells there and you got to have maybe some, at least start as some kind of club and eventually become some kind of regular ensemble at the university. Cause there's stuff like that all over. Like there's early music ensembles at universities and 
mariachi ensembles. There's all kinds of specialty things that you can go that are on Friday night or Wednesday night or something. And I think handbells should start there because then I think the composers in the composer programs would start to pay attention. This is exactly one of my conclusions in the dissertation. If you don't mind, I could just read it. It's the proposal that non-handbell composers should be exposed to the handbell ensemble. Prolific handbell composers are a small set. Writing effectively for the handbell ensemble takes a special compositional skill analogous to writing for the harp, classical guitar, or marimba. Those instruments require such a specialty that composers must understand their unique limitations before unearthing their vast hidden possibilities. So the majority of trained composers do not know how to write for handbells. This is not an indictment of composers. Most composers do not need to specialize in every way. But if more composers were exposed to handbell writing during their training to write for orchestral and band percussion, or as part of a separate training, then more original works would exist. Elaine Gold's Behind Bars, The Notation Guide, which is like really respected by professional engravers, it doesn't even mention the handbell or its notation or anything like that, despite having sections for harp and classical guitar and marimba. So that's my argument there. As, as you're speaking about this too and, and exposing outside composers to the handbell world and explaining what, what all is possible to them and what are the limitations of the instrument, I also think about there is some education that needs to happen within the handbell community as well. And especially like the one proposal of that the handbells and the handbell ensemble are free from the boundaries of the historical roots. I feel like handbell musicians ourselves get stuck in, well, this is what bells can do and this is what bells sound like yeah. and don't go beyond that. And that's one of the reasons I love and I fly all the way across the country to ring with Sonos because that is an ensemble that is not afraid. Jim Meredith is not afraid to do different things with the instrument. And I feel like within our own community, sometimes we're afraid to really go outside of the traditional use of handbells. Yes, exactly. Well said, Brian. Sonos is is definitely a step in the right direction, but I just, I only wish that there were a hundred Sonoses or all over, you know, and because that's sort of the difference in our world, because there are plenty of contemporary music ensembles and choirs and orchestras that do exist dotted around the country. But Handbells lacks the size, I guess, to have that bigger level of professionality and professionalized ensembles and things at the highest level and things like that. That's where I think we need to engage more with the orchestral percussion world and those people. I mean, trained percussionists make the best handbell ringers anyway. It's just natural to them. So there's something not quite connecting there. I can't think of exactly the solution. I have a bit of a logistical question, which both you, Christian and Brian, you have a lot more experience than I do in the orchestral world. So throughout your dissertation, Christian, you had mentioned certain techniques and timbres that are created and are done really only meet, meet like a maximum dynamic of, let's say, mezzo forte. And if you're typically in an orchestral setting, to balance that, like some sort of amplification is necessary, I would assume. Is that correct? For some of them, yes. That is a problem okay. for a lot of the techniques. Not that many, though. I'd say less than half in terms of all the timbres that I counted, because that's one of the things I did in this dissertation is I tried to make, I did make a timbre dictionary for the handbell and handchime. And I think you're right, Nick, that the, there is a problem with some of them being soft. In general, the handbell ensemble balances a little bit softly against louder ensembles like a full orchestra. But I think with careful writing and orchestration in an acoustic way, composers can overcome that. And then there is a vast untapped or not very tapped field of writing music for amplified or recorded handbell sounds, you know, mixed later 
and then being able to take advantage of the full range of timbres, including the sounds that only you can make softly. It comes down to how you're writing for the orchestra. If, if you have a big, loud part and you're competing against the full brass section, you're not going to use some of those softer timbres, right, the bell instrument right. anyway. And there are other instruments like harp, which is, as Christian mentioned, one of the slightly more analogous instruments. Yeah. Like that's, a harp isn't going to compete against the full brass section either. You've got to know when to use it. And I think that is some of what comes with learning this instrument is how would you use this in a texture of a full orchestra and when to use those different timbres and how they balance. That's, that's a great point. Harp is a perfect example because even though the harp sound production is not related at all to handbells, there's a great balance similarity to handbells. The bottom end is really weak in terms of amplitude and attack. It gets a little bit more projecting through the orchestra. When it gets higher, it's also set up by default into a key if you're playing it in the normal way. <laughs> So it has some interesting similarities. But yeah, if composers for hundreds of years have been required to learn how to write for the harp, and they absolutely are, and a harp is not an easy thing to learn how to write for, handbells should just be another one of those. It should just be another harp. And imagine what we could do if an entire handbell ensemble was part of a percussion section of an orchestra. It could absolutely work. I know we definitely, the, the end goal is for the handbell instrument to be viewed on the same professional level as any of the other percussion instruments or anything else like that in an orchestral setting. But I think there is also, in order to get there, in order to get in front of eyes and ears of the different composers or different people in the rest of the professional music world, I don't think we need to totally shun the novelty thing right away because there are definitely moments like Virginia Bronze performed with the Washington Chorus a few years ago at the Kennedy Center, at the, at the concert hall in the Kennedy Center, which was an awesome opportunity to get handbells in front of a new audience mm. that had never heard handbells before. And we were definitely there to be the novelty Christmas thing that year. But I still considered that a win getting us in front of a different audience that had never seen or heard handbells before. And there were definitely, there was a small brass quintet there that was mostly members of the National Symphony Orchestra. And they were all like, actually, that was really good. I've never actually heard handbells do that before. Mm -hmm. I think there is sort of an intermediate step of maybe we need to slightly embrace the novelty factor of handbells a little bit just to get into a new audience, but then continue building on that to reach new audience of composers and musicians. Yeah, I think that I think that's totally appropriate. Even the experimental composer in me doesn't even have a problem with that because you just have to expose people to the instrument. And there's definitely going too far with shtick and stuff like that. But overall, if you're reaching a new audience, that's great. It's like a gateway in a way, right? Like this is a way to expose the ability of what Hamill ensembles can do in vast ways so that hopefully the opportunities arise from that. Mm -hmm. Actually, this connects back to you a bit, Brian, because Sonos has done this a couple of times, right? Where you've been guest artists with others. You've done combined events. Yeah, a couple of times. The one time that I performed with them, and we mentioned this last episode, was with the chorus and orchestra at BYU-Idaho. Mm. And we did a part, we were part of their Christmas program. We were the special guests along with Frederica Van Schada. And there were a few pieces that we did solo, and there were a few pieces that the conductor of the orchestra at BYU-Idaho had written and included a handbell part as well. And that's probably actually the best use of, of handbells in a full orchestral setting. It was actually a full part. It wasn't wasn't sort of the like, oh, bells can do a few little dings here and there. It was a full part. It was a substantial part. And I thought the whole thing went really well. That's great. Who was the arranger of the music? So that was Dr. Randall Kempton, who is the director of choral activities for BYU-Idaho. Oh, great. Who, as we discovered last week when talking to Corbin, BYU-Idaho does have a set of handbells, but does not actively use it. Mm. 
yeah, how do we change that at the university level, you know? What year was that again, Brian? That was 2019. Okay. And when was your dissertation done, Christian? 2020. But I didn't know about that. That's really that's really cool. It's almost like we're on the cusp of something. Like, got to keep the ball rolling with everything. Yeah. You guys have said it before. It feels like there's like a pregnant moment in, in the next 10 or 20 years. But I don't know how immediate any change would happen. But the future is exciting. And largely paving the way for that in the last few decades has been Jim. Jim Meredith. He's helped me so much with this dissertation, by the way. It actually started as just a study of just one of his works. But one thing I learned from Jim is that he did a series of interviews with Libby Larson, the composer who wrote Hell's Bells for Sonos and Frederica Bonstade. And that was 2001 when that was premiered with Sonos. And Libby Larson had a great quote in an interview with Jim. She said that her handbell stereotypes were subconsciously ingrained. And she talked about needing to, quote, purge the stereotypes when writing the piece. And she said that she had to relearn it. And it helped her understand, Sonos helped her understand, that handbells don't need to be, quote, ding or dong, after which she approached the bell as a flexible sound resonator. And then it has its own properties. So she found that it has more than two to 12 sounds. <laughs> and I think that's a huge thing for a composer. I mean, we know when we play handbells that handbells has more than five or 10 sounds because Extended technique is very conveniently a part of our regular technique in a way. And we have mm -hmm. those things like built-in marts and echoes and so on. But there's so much more. So there's a lot that you rarely hear. There's a lot of sounds that can come out of a single handbell that most people never hear. I love that description. Uh, flexible sound resonator. Yeah. It's so accurate. And it kind of doesn't look like one. A bell is like metal and hard, but really you can get so much out of it. Yeah, the... And this is definitely a topic for another episode, but just the acoustic physical properties of a handbell are way more complex than you think they are. And I think that that definitely is what contributes, I think, to some of the, the huge range of timbral possibilities from the instrument. Absolutely. In the dissertation, after I finished counting up all the sounds, which is a process that took a long time, over a year, because I, I really contacted dozens of composers, handbell composers mostly, and utilized the help of a lot of other people, non-handbell people, just so I could make sure I got a well-rounded perspective. It has, I think, almost all of the sounds that you can make on a handbell. And if I'm missing any, I would love to know and add them in. <laughs> but I counted 165 distinct sounds that a handbell can make. There's a little bit of in-between, so a little bit of subjectivity there, but I think a pretty good number is 165. And that's one bell. That's like a C5 or a C4. So any mid-range bell can make 165 different sounds if you use all kinds of things and apply things to it. And then 74 on a hand chime. So that's not bad. I mean, I can't think of 165 in any other instrument unless prepared heavily. And these are we're talking about things where you have a table and foam, but you also have mallets and then a few other doodads, and that's about it. That's 165 because of, of a lot of factors. Like our instrument is so movement-based, so the different movements of the way the sound points. That's a thing that a lot of other instruments just simply can't do. So there's a lot to be explored there. That kind of leads me to my next question. Of all of those techniques that you, whether knew about them or researched and found out about them, like what are some examples of techniques you just had no clue about before you began this work? Oh, well, putting aluminum foil around the casting and then playing normally is a thing that I didn't know about until I think 2017, National Seminar when one of P.L. Grove's pieces had that in it. And then I used that in my dissertation piece. My dissertation as a composer, I also had to write a big piece and I was already doing so. And I put that in there too. 
that's part of my work, which was performed. That's, I think, my one of my favorites that I've learned in the last few years. And then one that I think I came up with myself was the clothespin thing, or at least I. some people have probably thought of this too, but if you put wooden clothespins, the kind that have a metal spring in them, mm-hmm. on the casting, it kind of mutes the sound in a very pleasing way. kind of sounds like a Javanese gamelan, but also it lowers the pitch a little, which makes it sound even more like a gamelan because it's kind of detuned. Pitch goes down a little, depending on how many clothespins you put on and how big the bell is. It's wonderful. The only problem is if you play too hard, they, they fall off. <laughs> but I did use that in Voyaging as well in my piece. Those are some of my real all-time favorites. And then there's the dipping the bell in the water thing, which many people know about, which is so flexible because you can start with the bell in, you can put it in and out, you can do a pitch vibrato with it. Those are some of my favorites. And, you know, some, some of them are a little bit, you have to be careful because you don't want to do them too loud. It's like Jillian said in, in your episode about the tier list of the techniques. If you do some of these techniques, all of our warranties will be voided for Schulmerich and Malmark. Right. <laughs> but some of them are... Some of them are okay if you do them carefully, but, you know, it's just use your judgment. Yeah, and I think in your dissertation, you included a few little warning symbols for some of them that might be a little questionable on the <laughs> warranties. Yeah, I have like a general warning exclamation point and then like a red one for really, really bad. Don't actually do this except super soft. And the only way I would dare try some of them is at extra soft, but they do make very interesting, unique sounds. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, we've joked at Sonos because Jim is definitely, as we've mentioned several times, somebody who pushes the envelope of handbell sounds. We've joked that as as soon as a set of handbells is sold to Sonos, our warranty is immediately voided. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that means you're doing interesting stuff, so I wouldn't have it any other way. You mentioned that as part of this dissertation, you did write a piece, Voyaging, that included a lot of these different techniques and it has been performed. What was the experience like working with both the choir and the, and the harp that are also included in that, but also the handbell ensemble itself, because I'm sure some of these techniques that you were having them do in the piece were new to them. So what was the experience like working with that and getting this performance done? Yeah, well, the choir that premiered the entire piece was Choral Arts Initiative in Orange County, California. And it's really a testament to their vision that they would dare to tackle something this big, but that's what they do. They do new music, and their director is Brandon Elliott. and the handbell ensemble was made up mostly of my friends, pickup ensemble of the area of Orange County, some people from Timbray and some people, other area 12 people from Southern California, including people from my brother's church because there's a high level ensemble there. So the rehearsals were, were really a blast because the handbell ensemble, the musicians were absolutely down to try anything. Up till the last minute, we were adding stuff because it was a premier performance. I didn't have any water like dipping until near the end, which seems kind of silly because the piece was about the ocean. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I eventually did add that in. So they were, they were doing stuff all the way up until the end. The music itself is Walt Whitman poetry of the sea, but it's really the soul. And if you know your Walt Whitman, you'll know that it's mostly about like life and death and transcendence and the journey of life and that kind of thing. The poetry is just absolutely beautiful and a delight to set to music, but pretty challenging. And the music ended up being hard too. So it's a, it was several months of rehearsal on the part of the choir and the handbell ensemble to put together this 45, 50 minute, 10 movement work. It was an accomplishment for sure for everyone involved, especially the people who played it and sang. And then our harpist, our harpist Gretchen Kirby was amazing too. I've known her for a long time. And as I've already said, the harp and the handbells have a weird, interesting connection. And that's what I was drawing on when I chose to combine harp with bell. But I think 
I think that the handbell ensemble and other instruments is a huge field that's also mostly untapped and music at that level of professional concert choirs and things like that. That's what I was aiming for with Voyaging. But it was really a whirlwind, but I loved it. I loved the whole experience. I didn't have to play or anything, so I got to enjoy the rehearsals just observing and tweaking things. Did you conduct it? So the choral conductor was the one who who led it. That was the arrangement we we had, yeah. And he had never conducted handbells before. So it was an amazing experience of of like this this just absolutely open-minded person just talking to me for hours about uh, where does this person stand and what does it look like when they do this thing and you know how precise is this attack and like how together will this chord be it's just just like absolutely heaven for me to just like nerd out about that kind of thing with another fellow musician and connect our our worlds in that way you know is there a recording of the performance yep they have it on their youtube and mine as well i think great because we can definitely link to that from our website awesome and the actual handbell musicians listening I hope they also appreciate the, the different techniques that are used and hear some interesting things there too. I didn't even use all 146 of what I found. Some of the stuff I found, I found after I was really writing this piece, not sure I used more than 40 or 50, but still, it's just such a ripe field. And if you hear Voyaging, you'll hear it's a little bit conservative in the timbre area because I was still working on my dissertation, but there's so many sounds possible. It's just, it's so exciting. And to combine them with like the choir and all the different sounds that a choir can make or a harp, et cetera, especially instruments like a harp that can also have a smaller but really interesting set of weird timbres also, that is uh, very exciting to me. Especially movement eight is where I would direct people to listen to if they want to hear the weirdest of the weird in terms of prepared timbres with the harp and the bells. I put putty, like picture hanging putty tape we used on the harp strings to make it like a gamelan. And then we prepared the bells with some foil and some clothespins and stuff. It was a, it was a good time. <laughs> so you mentioned that with Voyaging, as you were writing that during the whole process of the dissertation, that it was a little bit more on the conservative side. Have you done more writing since then that continues to explore and continues to expand on some of the other techniques that you've found since writing that piece? Yeah, a, a little. I unfortunately entered a period of not writing very much right after the dissertation was over, but that was for a good reason. I was basically just about to have two kids at that time. So <laughs> since then, I have written a short piece called Momentum for the Velocity Handbell Ensemble that we're going to try out this next year. And that uses a lot more, at least packed into its sort of three or four minute runtime that has a lot more timbres in it. And I'm hoping to produce a small set of pieces that it can be a little set. They'll be like momentum, spin, charge, just sort of particle physics-y type of things. I think that would make it for a really cool timbre-based thing with handbells. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Is there plans to get that published and available if other ensembles want to check that out? Absolutely. I mean, momentum is the only one that's done so far, but I do plan to finish the whole thing sometime this year. I've always got like ideas, but long-term plan, eventually I have another full concert-length voyaging scale type thing with the texts already selected and a choir idea ready to go, just uh, still in the initial stages of planning how it's going to get performed and how I'm going to make the time to write it and stuff like that. So with your dissertation out there as a really great resource that opens up the possibilities for not just composers in general, but even for our direct friends who are handbook composers in the industry, do you have a bit of a, a hope that folks will experiment a bit more and try new ways to create sound and music than just kind of a, for lack of, for my word, I'll just say kind of a basic approach that like Brian and I talked about in the, the tier episode. 
you have kind of that hope that they'll reach out to them more? Yeah, I do. I hope that people will read it and handbell composers might see things in there that they haven't seen before and get some ideas. At the surface level, I hope that happens. I also hope that it encourages some handbell composers to think more about composing in a timbral way, like in a sound-based way, instead of just straight ahead format of just like A section, B section, A section, all in a certain key. I'd rather hear some people try some different things, uh, try some different sounds out as more of a structural thing. And the reason why I immediately think that is because that's kind of what's going on right now with academic composers is regardless of whether or not you might personally as a listener appreciate this kind of music, but what they're doing right now is like timbre. They're experimenting with sound and Throughout music history, different things have been focused on by composers, harmony, whatever, melody, you name it. But now it's sound. So different kinds of, of sounds and soundscapes and things put together and things like that. And handbells can absolutely do that. So I think that I do hope that people will read this and get some ideas of how to just like create different sound layers in their music. Maybe they doesn't have to change the style of the way they write their music, but maybe they can add a different background thing in with a different sound because you need, music needs that depth, you know, and handbell music can easily just be one, one layer of just playing. Connected to that, did, did you by chance happen to see any of the performances from National Seminar this past July? No, not this year. Okay. So a while ago, I was asked to do an arrangement of No Time for Caution from Interstellar. Oh. And connected to that, Bob Avant with his group, Austin Hamill Ensemble reached out to me and said, hey, we want to do a bit of a, a suite. We want to connect with another song from the soundtrack. So he asked me to do day one, which is essentially the main theme. So I did the arrangement set off to him. But what they brought to the performance was probably 80% of what I put on paper, but they added an amazing extra 20% wow. that just made it super ethereal and amazing. Some excellent use of bowed chimes. Yeah. He's been able now to get an E7 to sing. So they're like E7s on different sides of the stage, actually providing a singing bell timbre they did a, just an outstanding job of just establishing the atmosphere surrounding that piece oh that's awesome and i love interstellar <laughs> and you know that's a great even though i haven't heard it i already the way you're describing it's just that's the thing about bells is that we can we already know that our instrument is adequate at performing arrangements of things but also an arrangement of something that's like inherently sound texture based that can absolutely happen in our instrument it's just we don't always think that way but you are <laughs> Well, they added a lot of the the awesome stuff, I'll be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was so, so cool. As we mentioned before, we're definitely going to link to this dissertation and to the performance of Voyaging on our website, tutakoshigh.com. And we encourage anybody to go ahead and take a look at that dissertation and watch the recording as well. But uh, I wanted to ask Christian, you also included eight proposals, and they are just as valuable to current handbell community as they are to the outside music world. I wanted to ask if you wanted to go ahead and read them to us. The first one is the handbell ensemble is not handbells and therefore should be treated less like a symbol and more like an instrument. What I mean there is that the handbell ensemble is more than a single bell and its sounds, even though a single bell can make apparently 146 or so sounds. You need padded tables, mallets, and all the other means of sound production. If a handbell is like a piano key, an ensemble is like a piano. No one thinks of a piano as a loose assortment of strings. Number two, you, we touched on already. The handbell and handbell ensemble are free from the boundaries of their historical roots. The bell throughout history has been, you know, such a religious symbol or an honored symbol, but bells throughout history couldn't play a lot of tunes like musical melodies and harmonies and things like that because the sound was too complex and bright. 
and only in the 50s or so when Schulmerich and then Malmark came out with the technology that they did, do we now have bells that have that purity of tone. So part of the strength of the handbell is that its sounds can also evoke abstract bells, but they're cleaner and more flexible than their ancestors. The meaning of bells, I said in, the, in this part of the chapter, is transcended through this modern instrument. The proposal is that the handbell and the handbell ensemble are free from the boundaries of their historical roots and are capable of evoking them or not evoking them up to the composer. And then number three, the handbell ensemble qualifies as an expressive instrument and should be considered just as musically capable of expression as other instruments. My argument there is the dictionary itself. There's a lot more sounds than people uh, give it credit for. And then number four, the handbell ensemble genre qualifies as a serious genre and should therefore be considered to perform at levels comparable to canonically popular genres. We talked about this too. And our size and newness is our problem there. Another one we talked about, I think we talked about all of these. The fifth one, handbell ensemble performers must professionalize and incorporate more trained percussionists so that the cross-pollination will strengthen the professionalism of the handbell ensemble. A quick aside on this one, I think one of the most interesting ideas that has been sort of the brainchild of me and a couple people, but we just never managed to make happen, but I want to do someday, is a sort of camp, a summer camp, where half the students are college percussionists and the other half are handbell musicians. And they spend the week or week and a half switched with each other and teach each other how to do their, their thing. And so by the end, you have the percussionists playing a handbell in a handbell ensemble. And you've got handbell players doing like snare drum rudiments and marimba quartets and stuff. I, I just think that's exactly 100% what we need. It's my soapbox on that. Sign me up for that. I would love I, that. Yeah. So yeah, I would do that in two seconds. <laughs> yeah, I think it could absolutely work at some sort of college environment where the instruments were already there. So we'll talk to Greg Asher. So I'll try to figure something out. Number six, non-handbell composers should learn to write for the handbell ensemble so that more wholly original works can be added to the repertoire to balance the preponderance of arrangements and so on and so forth. That particular proposal is the one that I already read from my dissertation earlier in this episode where we talked about the engraving book and how it mentions marimba and guitar and harp and no mention of a handbell, how composers need to you know, learn to write for our instrument to use it. And then number seven, the handbell is a timbral instrument. Therefore, composers should learn to use the handbell ensemble timbrally, that is sound-based, by taking advantage of its vast sound variety. And then number eight, it's the last one. And I think it's the, maybe the most subjective, but also the one that I feel the most strongly passionate about. So I'm just going to read it in its entirety. Musicians should make boundary crossing creations with the handbell ensemble. The large world of classically trained musicians versus the handbell world has been described sometimes by me as occupying two worlds. The handbell ensemble world is internally active, containing organizations like HMA, etc. We have rich history, good modern acoustic and mechanical technology, a particular strength in ensemble musicianship, a relatively new and open genre, an abundance of sounds, many unused or unexplored by composers. I believe that the handbell ensemble must be combined with other instrumentations. This is a different combination than that of handbells with other instruments. This is the handbell ensemble with other instruments. Only by using the ensemble do composers have access to its attributes, a group trained to work together with tables and mallets and all else imaginable to produce a broad spectrum of sound. When the handbell ensemble is used by composers as a composite percussion group to be mixed with other instrumentations, these composers can work with sound combinations that are mostly unexplored. But most critically, when this occurs, it promotes collaboration with handbell ensembles and it connects the two worlds. Many provocative works have yet to be written for the handbell ensemble with voice, small vocal ensemble, large choir, solo instrument, chamber instruments, large instrumental ensembles, 
non-Western instrumentations, amplified instruments, electronic media, multimedia components, or combinations of these. Both the set of composers who consider themselves handbell composers and the set of all other composers should endeavor to write these works. It's critical that these works be written so that the handbell ensemble can move forward with growing into its potential. So the proposal is, musicians should make boundary-crossing creations with the handbell ensemble by writing and performing music for the handbell ensemble combined with other instrumentations. So with all eight of these out there and published in the, like, literally you've put down your kind of your belief and goals with everything. In the past few years, have you seen any kind of progress or any of these proposals that have really have worked or are starting on the right path just from your perspective? I don't know. I think it's, I think it's moving slowly and was already moving before I put it in this format as like an argument. Of course, people are working so hard for the, all of these different aims. I do think that every year we get a little bit more interesting showing from the concerts that appear at, at the national or area events. So I think that's definitely a step in the right direction. So a bit of a uh, silly question to close this out. Do you have a favorite or least favorite handbell technique? Oh, let me get my dictionary out. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually not really very easily searchable by favorite because <laughs> it's, it's sure. written by, or it's organized by method of sound production. So I think the weird answer is that I love, I love what happens when you bow the casting edge. Although, as you mentioned, in your tier list, when you do that on the rim of the casting, the pitch that comes out is very unpredictable, and it's not the pitch that, of the bell. Also, probably isn't that good for the bronze, so you have to clean it after because you're going to get rosin on there. But it's just haunting. It's not quite as horror movie as bowing a cortale, but it's it's really something special. Other than that, I'd have to say the foil on the bell is just just fantastic. It sounds like a that sounds like a pitch sizzle symbol. I've not ever tried the one with the foil wrapped around the bell. Yeah. You know how some handbell timbres are like basically just a subtle change on the default timbre? This one is completely different. It's just something, as soon as you play, it's like, oh, this is, this is affecting it at every level. Hmm. Really something else. Yeah. And if you, if you want to hear that foil thing being used, along with the clothespin thing, you got to go just the second half of movement eight of voyaging. Great. Well, yeah, we will definitely link that to our website along with the dissertation, as we mentioned. Also, if you are a fan of Two Tacos High, you might also be a fan of A Moment of Bach, which is a awesome podcast hosted by Christian and his brother Alex, which comes out weekly. Is that correct? Yeah, from about March to November. Yeah, our, our Bach podcast, A Moment of Bach, we have the permission of the Netherlands Bach Society, which has these fantastic video recordings on YouTube to use their recordings and so every week we focus on one favorite moment of a Bach piece, which uh, is both of our favorite composers, J.S. Bach. Awesome. So definitely go and check that out. Wherever you find Two Tacos High, you can also find A Moment of Bach. So go like and subscribe to that podcast as well. Thanks, Brian. I have to say one more thing to you guys, which is thank you so much for using intro-outro music that is not just like it's just a straightforward handbell performance of bell sounds. I love how, how it's the, uh, the altered version of that arrangement. And that's all you, Brian, right? Yeah, no, that, that started a few years ago uh, with Virginia Bronze when we performed at National Seminar in St. Louis. Uh, when preparing for that concert, I knew I didn't want to go in and just do just a, another concert just of handbells alone because that's all anybody at that seminar hears all week. And so started to come up with an idea of combining right. electronics and handbells 
which is something that I've been working at doing since then and been slowly working through and recording my own versions of pieces. The, the latest was actually your brother's piece, Overdrive, that I did, recorded all the handbell parts, but also threw a bunch of uh, synth parts in as well. It was a lot of fun to put yes, together. Yes, I heard that. That was awesome. Yeah, keep up the good work on those. Those are, those are really cool. Well, Kristen, thank you. This has been, I'm reflecting back on this episode, just our conversation together here. And in an interesting way, it's like this episode, obviously the Technique tier list episode, but even a bit of last week's episode with Corbin, they all kind of intertwined. Like you mentioned, you know, Corbin saying, be ambassadors for the instrument, where last week's episode was that true? Like it was in a kind of music education approach. This one's almost in a compositional approach, like get out there and just write, try, yeah. uh, create, I think it's probably the, the best way to describe it. So it's like when Brian and I did the technique tier list episode, we're like, Christian, we got it, Christian, like it's the next best step. And sure enough, it absolutely was. But just to have your expertise, your experience, and literally your dissertation to draw from, thanks for putting that together really to the handbill world to use. And hopefully this can be a bit of an impetus for folks who are like, yeah, I want to try things out. And no matter how quote unquote strange or weird it is, let's, let's do it. Let's give it a shot. That's great to hear you say that. I'm hopeful that it will reach people, but also it's such a group effort. It was really inspiring to hear that episode about music education from your podcast. That's the step that goes before my step. That's the step of just exposing things, especially to children, to demonstrate the seriousness and the potential of our instrument to people at that level so that they just grow up with that inherently. That's huge. So that they don't just fall into the pattern that we have so many of our colleagues in the outside music world of just not really knowing what we can do. We just want them to already know what we can do so that they can always be thinking of what to do with our instrument. Well, thank you so much, Christian, for joining us. This was a lot of fun to talk about and definitely look forward to seeing more composers both within the handbell world and outside writing and, and really taking full advantage of the different possibilities of timbres from this instrument. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Nick. Love your podcast. I was so excited when it premiered. I was right away all about it. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Everyone else like, subscribe, and follow. Yeah. As we mentioned several times throughout this episode, please do check out our website, twotacoshigh.com. I'll spell out T-W-O-T-A-C-O-S-H-I-G-H.com. If you head over to the episodes tab, we've got a link to all of our episodes so far, as well as a link to any of the other things that we've mentioned during the episodes that we would also connect you with. I'm looking at it right now. I'm seeing things like the the tier list. We have it very easily kind of spelled out there from episode six. We've got the seminar program booklet that we talked about when we were recapping the, the national seminar where Brian and I were back in July. Last week, after our interview with Corbin, we have some info there about him. So yeah, check this out. Get a little more details from some specifics within those episodes. Also, be sure to like and follow us on Facebook, X, or the social media formerly known as Twitter. Instagram, all two tacos high, also spelled out. And like or follow, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Thanks again to everyone who's helped made this podcast possible. Jillian Perdos for our logo. Mike Joy, the arranger of Giovanni Ivanke for intro-outro music. Genevieve G.B. Hansen for literally everything else and making sure things get done. Thanks again for joining with us here at Two Tacos High. I'm Nick Hansen. And I'm Brian Zeman. And we'll catch you in the next episode.